welcome back to ONS Energy Talks. My name is Inger Johanna Stenberg and I'm very excited to share one of the most inspiring talks from ONS 2022 with you. Our moderator Kimberly Matheson is the CEO of Hub Ocean and she leads the panel consisting of three great thinkers and innovators searching for the leapfrog. You'll hear more about quantum computing, graphene, the aging and the major potential in our oceans. First, we have Professor Christoph Locke from Cambridge Judge Business School. Then you will hear from Professor Maria Strömme from the University of Uppsala. And then William Vass, VP Engineering from Amazon Web Services. So now we have the pleasure of having three rather big thinkers on the stage with us here today. Um, Interestingly, each of these people, as you've now heard and gathered, is is very deep on quite some topics um, of, of great importance. But all of you also have a, have a very wide view um, across things that can really matter for the energy system, which uh, which makes it exciting to explore with you this morning. So, Christoph, I, I want to to start with you and um, get a little bit more into the how. Um, in your work, I mean, company after company has tried to innovate in small ways over time and breakthrough ways. Some succeed. Um, there are many methodologies out there. Can you give us a look into what you believe works? What doesn't work? What can we learn? Okay. Um, I would say that uh, many companies have actually very successfully uh, come up with uh, significant innovations. And um, and what it takes to get there uh, is, uh, you know, in a way what I showed you earlier, uh, you, you have a vision, um, you, uh, uh, you are determined to pursue it. Um, and, uh, and then you go in steps in order to learn uh, what needs to be learned in order to get there. Um, uh, I, I mentioned earlier the, um, uh, the example of uh, zero emission steel, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that is making big waves in Sweden right now. Um, and, uh, what it took was that they developed a process that uses hydrogen instead of, uh, uh carbon in order to pull the oxygen out of the, uh, uh iron, uh, ore, um, uh, in order to reduce it. Uh, and then they have to do lab tests and then they have to do a verification facility of a, you know, of a few tens of tons. And then they do a, uh, a scale up facility of maybe 20,000 tons per year. And then ultimately they do a real plant that is commercially viable of a million tons per year. And this takes 10 years and it takes a lot of money to develop, but you, it, it, you are running uh, a big risk if you skip the steps because then your scale up is so big that you just have no idea what's going to happen and the whole thing may fail. And I've seen, and this is quite typical. And I've seen this, you know, in another, uh, you know, iron ore reduction, uh, you know, process that I followed uh, uh, two decades ago. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, another example from the telecom industry, uh, you know, that I followed is how Huawei uh, developed 5G. Of course, they were accused that they stole patents from the United States, which is not true. Uh, they had uh, 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 
a linked set of R&D centers in many countries, you know, they invested a lot of money uh, where ideas came from different people in, you know, including some uh, obscure mathematicians, uh, you know, who did information theory plus uh, materials. Uh, and at some point they put it together, they developed prototypes, they scaled it up. And it's, then at some point, you know, they came up with uh, 5G and it took 10 years and it took a lot of money. It's a, it's the willingness to take the intermediate steps to learn. And what is driven by it is you need to have a vision. You need to have the managerial will and the staying power, uh, you know, to not deviate. Um, and, uh, and then you need to have the creativity and the technical expertise, which many companies have. And then some companies, uh, you know, some things are so crazy that you rather have them tried out by startups, uh, you know, like the example, uh, you know, that you came up with, um, uh, that you showed us. Um, and, uh, you know, startups, of course, also very often fail, uh, but they are, you know, they can do really crazy stuff where the company says, mm, you know, maybe that's a little bit too risky right now. So, uh, uh, so, so there are different pathways, uh, but but that managerial, uh, you know, will uh, that that is really the ultimate requirement. So I'm 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 annoyed. I'm irritated by this ten year thing you keep coming back to, um, and then we have these beautiful words out of software development, for example, agile. So come on, doesn't like agile offer us uh, something in the midst of this ten year journey that we ought to be doing better, faster, cheaper? Uh, okay. So now, you know, this, uh, I, I'll try not to now sink into, uh, you know, technical details, right? Agile originally, uh, you know, started out as a coordination method in software development, right? You know, so you make small changes without them, uh, ricocheting around, you know, your whole system. Now agile says, you, you don't say, you know, we want to have that thing that is, you know, out there, you know, and then we go for 10 years and nothing happens. And in 10 years, I come back and I look at, look at what you have done, you know, and chances are that what they did, you know, were different from what I thought they were doing. Right. And so agile says, you know, do a first little step and, and then we talk and then do another little step and then we talk. So it goes right back to this iteration and we need to do intermediate steps, you know, in order to get to the final goal. Agile does not promise you to say, oh, we can skip all the intermediate steps. We just go to the final goal in three months. Agile doesn't do that for you. Agile allows you to do intermediate steps and recognize them as intermediate steps. There is no shortcut, you know, and, and when you look at the companies who say, you know, we are speeding up things and we will get to net zero. And they all say by 2030, which is, by the way, you know, close to 10 years from now, you know, and Rolls Royce says that. And, you know, that steel company says that, you know, so 10 years for big you know, technological innovations, you know, not only coming up with the proof of concept that you can do faster, but then to scale it up, to make it reliable, uh, you know, and then to get the supply chain going, you know, and to do all the things that you can actually do it at scale reliably, that takes multiple years. I mean, the 10 years is a rule of thumb, mm. but there, you know, there is no magic formula that says, uh, you know, you can do something you know, like that. It doesn't exist. Mm, mm, all right. Uh, Maria is skeptical, you know, <laughs> oh, tell no, us. Uh, no, no, I kind of agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I might have a different view on the software side of things since we, we, we do deliver seven new products and ser or major service features every day. 
at Amazon. So from a software side, but I think when you start including hardware in that, that's when the 10 years comes. And in. when the software is a leapfrog, you know, then, you know, that's no longer true either. Because yeah, the yes, software then never works in the first iteration, right? right so, right. so yes, software, you can do development very fast, but yeah. when you do something really new, mm. you know, then you're no yeah. longer, we no, no longer are talking about yeah. very fast. Yeah. And there's, you know, right? one system we're about to launch that does uh, infinite simulation or large scale simulation was a seven year development cycle, but also it required hardware to be developed along with it. it when we started it seven years ago, the hardware didn't exist. Yeah. I'm, we I'm involved in a yeah. company that makes, uh, uh, operating systems for quantum computers. Okay. So <laughs> software for quantum computers, yeah. right. And they have been going now for eight years you know, and now they have something that they're actually selling. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's software and we are still talking about this amount of time. Yeah. And we'll continue to talk about software and hardware, right? There's no getting around that we're <laughs> going to need both and both working together and pushing forward as fast as possible. Yeah. Let me shift the topic or the, uh, the question over to Maria. Um, Maria, Gosh, we got to be so hopeful, as you said earlier, about all of the possible breakthroughs coming out of material science. Many people highlight this as absolutely the core of sort of everything that's going to save us. So I've asked you to look across the landscape and to pick out a couple of true breakthrough areas and to tell us more about a couple things. So let's go a little deeper um, on two that you believe in. Okay, I'll mention a few. And uh, the first one I mentioned is like 10 years since it got the Nobel Prize. So we already passed the 10 year limit. <laughs> the first material I'm going to dive a little bit into is graphene. I mean, most of you have heard about graphene. The discovery of graphene won the Nobel Prize in physics in 2010. It's this super thin, electrically conducting material consisting of one atomic layer of carbon. And... Um, a few years ago, a colleague of mine at Rice University, Professor James Torrey, invented a super interesting method of being able to use food leftovers, plastic waste and e-waste to, in a very inexpensive way, an upscalable way, make graphene. And waste is interesting. So if you look at food waste, we throw away about between 30 and 40 percent of all the food we produce. So when we throw about food, throw away so much food, we, we, we waste all the energy and water required for growing, harvesting, transporting and, and packaging food. And when we leave food to rot, uh, leave it as landfill, it produces methane and that is a greenhouse gas even more potent than CO2. And our food waste actually accounts for 10% of all the greenhouse gases we emit. And that is three times more the emission from aviation. And if we then can use these food leftovers to produce graphene, what could we do with that? Well, then we can combat another really big environmental problem, which you probably have heard Bill Gates talk about lately, cement. Cement is also responsible for 10% of our carbon dioxide emissions. And, you know, we are in a phase now of a very rapid urbanization. We are expected to move to cities like crazy. And so we will need a lot of new infrastructure being built. And if we put a tiny bit of graphene, just 0.1% into cement, we can reduce the emissions from cement by one third because cement becomes so much stronger and we need much less in our infrastructure buildings. So I think this is an ex a super good example on how we with a smart materials technology can create a sustainable economy. 
And the other uh, material or material technology I wanted to, to talk about today, and it actually hooks up to your heat waves and panicking, me panicking for the climate, and that is clothes and textiles. Because as we may realize now, sweat is starting to become a really big environmental problem. <laughs> and yeah, you can laugh, but why is that? Well, if you look at the energy consumption for air conditioning in the US only, that is just as high as the entire energy consumption of Africa. And we are expected to increase our air conditioned energy consum consumption 33 times within the next 80 years due to increased living standards in warm areas of China, Africa and India. And also, of course, due to the uh, global warming. And this has led very many material scientists to ask us if clothes could be given another function than they have today. Could we use clothes to cool our bodies so that we can tolerate a higher indoor temperature? And the answer to that is actually also yes. And it is super simple. By creating small tunnels, nanopores in the material polyethylene. I mean, you know, all know what polyethylene is. It is this, uh, these transparent uh, plastic bags that you find in the grocery stores. Those are made of polyethylene. But if you make nanopores in this material, you actually transform the material to something that looks like cotton and that feels like cotton. And the best thing of all, it actually lets through the heat radiation from our bodies so much so that our skin temperature can be cooled by four degrees. And if we can tolerate an indoor temperature that is four degrees higher than normal, well, then we can save about 45% of the energy we use for, for air condition. And uh, I mean, if you look at how would this scale, what are the hurdles here? Precisely, because these yeah. sound like uh, magic. Yeah, because I mean, you can throw away a lot of information about cool technology, but, but in the end, you need to, to, make, you need to realize yeah. it. So if you start with the simple things, the textiles, then the good news that, is that these are already made large scales because this exact nanoporous polyethylene is an excellent um, uh, separator material for lithium-ion battery, batteries. So it's produced for the lithium-ion battery industry. So here I actually see, see it as a um, uh, chance for the fashion industry to make good. So it's a question who dares to be the first mover. And I think there are a lot of goodwill to be won uh, from an environmental concerned uh, um, public. And if you look at graphene, of course, that's that's a bit more difficult, but I think there's a lot of money to be made in this industry, but you need to invest in scale-up factories and to, I mean, harvest this food waste and e-waste and plastic uh, waste. So, so a bit, a bit more difficult. Um, I can address the, the, the difficulty of this solar harvesting from space later if we have time, but I don't want to take more time. I want to leave the word to you. Well, I actually, have, I have a question for you. So one of the big areas we're looking at, of course, is hydrogen for us. So we, we're removing green molecules where we can. Isn't there uh, material science around uh, nanotechnology for storing hydrogen more densely? Absolutely. Can you there, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, there, a, are, there, are there are moths and there are coughs. Like, uh, so there, I mean... You, 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 you can tune materials on the nanoscales to get pores uh -huh. of a suitable size yeah. to be able to pack hydrogen very closely. And there is a lot of research yeah. going on in that area right now. But 
I don't dare to call that leapfrog technologies. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure that it will take 10 years, yeah, but we are a few years into that yeah. research. So, yeah. b- b- but there are a m- lot of investments research-wise worldwide on that, on nanoporous yeah. materials. Yeah, because that could really yeah. transform how hydrogen is moved and stored and even used in vehicles, right? So that's Yeah, a- and it's a good long-term story. I, mm. I, I was at this seminar yesterday when they looked at different timescales for storage facilities mm. and hydrogen is definitely needed for more long time seasonal stories batteries are good for day or week but not longer right yeah very 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 good and and bill then you're raising uh one of the many fields that you're in uh today (laughs) via your role in at aws but but also across your career i wanted to go back to what you started us on um I mean, it's no secret to anyone that Amazon is literally moving goods everywhere across our planet. Amazon is also operating at a certain scale, mm-hmm. which makes it um, incumbent upon you. We all look at you to say, how are you going to help move the needle? How are you going to get us to this new world? Right. So I'd, I'd like you to to actually take us into that a little bit more concretely. What are some of those things that Amazon is engaged in that do move the needle? Take us through, tell us how that gets done. Yeah, so it's a a huge problem as as Professor Locke pointed out in in doing this, but we're committed to get to this uh, uh, net zero by 2040, uh, kind of across the board, but it's a giant problem. So we account now for uh, the hydrocarbon emissions for all the products we manufacture, like the Alexas and the the, uh, uh, fire tablets and those kinds of things. Um, and then we also account for the transmission of it or the movement of it to you. Uh, if you buy an iPhone on us, we say, well, Apple's going to account for the hydrogen, I mean, the, for the uh, hydrocarbons there, but uh, we're going to account for moving it to you. So the, one of the biggest areas is bunker fuel on ships. And I don't have a good solution yet for that. I can come up with a whole bunch of things we're working on. But uh, I think one ship, if I remember, emits as much during its lifetime as much uh, emissions as 100 million cars. <laughs> so it's a big deal. Uh, bunker fuel on ships is a huge problem that, that we're going to have to deal with. And I don't have a good solution for that yet. I've got a lot of ideas, but some good don't have good solutions there. Um, in our data centers, uh, we've invested a tremendous amount in wind, solar, hydro, and a bunch of others to provide base loads for our data centers. And we feed those, those green electrons into our grids that we're connected to. Uh, and by 2025, we will cover all our data centers and building operations with green electrons. Uh, and uh, I'll always take green electrons first. So the most efficient way to move information. Of course, it's photons. That's almost it. But the green electrons is what I always want if I can get it. Uh, but in our fulfillment centers, a lot of people don't understand this. As we transition to electric vehicles in our fulfillment centers, they're actually going to use 21 times more energy than our data centers because we're removing the diesel from the cars and the trucks and the, the logistics components and moving it to electrons, right? Uh, so since the grid cannot provide that, there isn't enough grid uh, available to provide that amount of power. Uh, we're actually moving green hydrogen to those sites and running them through a cycle uh, with fuel cells to battery electric vehicles. Uh, now, the interesting thing about that is a battery electric vehicle motive force is about 93% efficient. The, the electrons to motive force, uh, the fuel cells are around 62% efficient we're using. When you add those efficiencies together plus the green hydrogen, it actually costs us less than diesel. 
Let me repeat that, less than diesel. So not only does it reduce our cost, uh, it also reduces our energy footprint. And so uh, that less than diesel uh, uh, is a big deal, though, because it means everyone will have to compete with us. They're all going to have to go to this kind of a solution to reduce their costs, right? Uh, and we are looking at long-haul hydrogen trucks as well, how we're going to ship the hydrogen. About five years ago, we moved uh, all of our forklift operations in all our fulfillment centers over to hydrogen to learn to manage hydrogen. <laughs> so we've been managing it for a number of years and build a supply chain up around it and how we're going to do that. Right. And we just did some big announcements on green hydrogen visor as well. But that just takes care of the fulfillment centers and that local logistics and our data centers. There's all these other areas where, where we won't be able to convert all our vehicles at once. So we're, we're looking to buy lots of uh, uh, biodiesel, uh, which is, gives us that offset. Uh, for the bunker fuel, we're going to have to do carbon offsets. There's no other way we can do that today. We're looking at ideas uh, uh, with some of the, the shipping companies about putting actually carbon capture on the stack, continue to use the bunker fuel, and then, then sequestering the carbon. Uh, but I mean, one message I would have to everyone here at ONS is we want to buy your renewable green electrons and green hydrogen right now. If you're looking for a buyer, we're here. <laughs> Go see us at the lounge. Uh, if you're looking to sell biodiesel, we're, we want it. We need it. Uh, we need the partners to be able to do this. We can do this together. And it is very much an all of the above solution. It's going to be all different types of energy that's going to have to be dealt with. Uh, everything that was on your list, we can't do it with one thing, right? So, so it's, it's going to have to be all of the above. But I think you can't wait for governments. You have to just decide to do it as a company. We're the number two fortune uh, uh, company uh, with over 1.6 million employees. And, and we want to be a leader here to show that it can be done. And it's not easy. Yeah. It's a tremendous amount of work. Yeah, really good. Um, within that set, do you want to offer an, um, a sharp example of, of where Amazon's made a choice and it has moved the market? It has shifted the way things get uh, developed. You know, we've got a we got a ten year timeline on everything. Can't Amazon help us move ten years? To a yeah, well, I mean, we've been we, we we have accelerated significantly with our investments, wind and solar, right? I mean, that's of course just across the board. We've invested a tremendous amount there, and we're going to continue to invest amount a, a tremendous amount there. There isn't a, a magic bullet, right? Uh, I think though, by leading the way and doing it, uh, uh, we'll have our first three. Uh, uh, fulfillment centers online with uh, powered by green hydrogen in 2023, which is quite fast, but there's about, there's over 700 of them globally. And so there's a lot of work to do there. There's also some challenges in a few places where we have data center regions where there, there isn't a green grid. So we're going to have to do local hydrogen uh, a conversion there as well. Again, if we can get the green electrons, that's what's the best choice, right? But it's, it's, uh, it's not, there aren't going to be enough green electrons out there everywhere to do it, especially at the rate at which we're growing. Mm. Uh, and we're still growing so fast that we're not able to keep up yet, but we have a, a pretty good handle on how to do this. And it's interesting in the cement production uh, uh, at uh, Sarah Week a number of years ago when I was talking there, I met a company that was doing carbon capture in cement. So we, we all our buildings now are built with carbon capture yeah. cement. So we inject it back into the cement. Perfect. So, so we don't we don't do graphene yet, but I'm going to follow up on that now. <laughs> but anyway. Very good. So, so Christoph, we're, we're hearing um, an articulation of, of big goals by Amazon, which just reminds us that we're hearing a, a lot of companies articulating very big goals indeed. So we need to start asking questions about, so who's coming back to tell us how they're making progress on this or how transparent 
are we actually getting a window on real progress at companies, right? The, the transparency itself in this time when, you know, digital might have been the thing that moved us in terms of innovation in the last decade, certainly one of the things that moved us were digital opportunities. Now it's often the case that in the room, it's sustainability that's moving the needle, moving investments and sustainable and digital go well together. But in terms of the transparency that, that is out there already, willing transparency or forced transparency, which is often called regulations. How is this, uh, what role does this need to play in driving us faster forward? Well, I'm, uh, I'm from a business school. Um, and, uh, the traditional view of business of regulation has been, uh, uh, you know, we are against it. It's not good. It's wasteful. It's terrible. Um, and, uh, regulation is absolutely necessary, uh, in order to get this, uh, companies cannot do this by themselves because, uh, there is a coordination problem that needs to be solved. Um, and again, yesterday, uh, in, in one of the technical sessions, uh, it became very clear because one of the participants said very clearly, um, you know, we are mixing, um, uh, you know, various, um, uh, inputs into our processes by regulation, because over time it will have to become less, uh, uh, CO2 intensive. Um, and, uh, there's already something available, which is below that, but it's more expensive. And so we are actually mixing in order to always stay at the regulatory boundary because otherwise we can't compete. I think this is a very good example, how, uh, regulation must drive how companies, are doing this because otherwise the cost pressures, uh, you know, simply push them always into another direction. So I think regulation in a context like this is absolutely necessary. Uh, it needs to be done, you know, in a reasonable way, in a fair way, uh, in a way which is transparent. Uh, and sometimes that's not the case, but regulation is necessary. Mm. Um, the other thing, of course, that plays a role here is uh, things like benchmarking and certification uh, and indicators and ESG is uh, you know, the, uh, the buzzword, uh, uh, that, that we can use here. Uh, and many people talk about ESG and in finance, there are now funds that only invest in, uh, ESG, um, you know, high performing companies, uh, but ESG, uh, you know, alone cannot, uh, uh carry that burden either, uh, because, uh, you know, how you measure, uh, you know, environmental and social and, uh, and governance issues, uh, is, is, is not clear. Uh, there are various ESG indicators. Uh, there have just been some studies that have shown that the various ESG indicators are actually inconsistent. Uh, and so, uh, therefore now finance people are crying wolf and they're saying, this is all nonsense. And we told you this is useless. Uh, and we always knew it, uh, which has now, uh, uh, prompted some of the uh, uh, green funds, the, you know, ESG funds, uh, to uh, allow oil and gas companies back into their ESG, uh, you know, investment. Because uh, uh, so, so this this is hard to do. Uh, it takes again, you know, a long time to come up with a standard that is generally accepted and that can really drive behavior. You need to drive ambiguity out of the measures uh, so you can justify them and defend them. Um, so. Uh, you know, uh, transparency is absolutely critical. 
you know, when there is no transparency, then all the doors are open for crooks to, um, you know, to free ride on everybody else. Mm. Uh, but uh, transparency is something that needs to be striven after and uh, you need to make a constant effort and governments must take the lead in this. Businesses simply cannot do this because businesses uh, are under pressures of competition uh, and that, uh, you know, working together uh, at the moment isn't working, yeah. in, you know, as well. Uh, Very clear. And, and to a certain degree, we were only in the beginning, but we really need to push this much, much yep. further uh, Very than good. we have Thank done. you. And, and our work in at Hub Ocean with respect to data on the oceans, if you're trying to work out how can data leapfrog us, this is a hotspot area. So the, the answer in my view cannot be, okay, the data is crap, the indices are crap, they're conflicting and confusing, so let's get rid of them. Mm. We have to keep pursuing a far better data set to take us where we need to go. So you you ignited a little passion in me there and I, I could go on. But I want us to learn a little bit more from Maria and Bill before we let you off the stage and go to our next panel. Um, we talked about material science breakthroughs so far. Maria, if you go off piste. Look at the big world alone. Um, give us uh, some inspiration wherever you find it in what represents Leapfrog for you. Yeah, then I will totally leave material science or maybe not and go to biotechnology and medicine. Uh, in the beginning of this panel, you asked us, why are we not doing the things we should do? Well, I think that this attitude, we will soon die, so why care? That attitude is really strong. Uh, and right now, if you dig deep into medicine, you will find that during the last five years, research into de-aging has skyrocketed. We're not talking about slowing down age. We are talking about de-aging. It's not science fiction. It's in nature. It's, a, it's in Lancet. So we have been, under, uh, been able to understand the mechanisms of aging and to play the piano right or epigenomes right so that our bodies can remain young. And what does this have to do with whatever we're discussing here? Well, I think that when world leaders, uh, business leaders start to realize that there are tools now in the toolbox that can help us become much older and prevent all these age-related diseases, and definitely that can make the lives of our kids and grandkids extremely more long than the life are they, then I think we will start to create the motivation needed to take difficult decisions. And if you have not had time to read up on the literature, you should. Or let me put it this way, if you, if you don't ha have time, then you definitely should, because that will give you time. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So that, that, that was a, a different idea, probably, than, than what we might have expected you to say. So thank you for that. So Bill, um, we've got a couple minutes left here. Um, your experience in the ocean mm -hmm. and technology allows me to bring one of my great passions out to the stage. I'd, I'd love for you to talk to us about your experience at Liquid Robotics or more broadly, when we think about cloud-based technology, sensors, AI, all this great stuff and the ocean mm -hmm. and its currently very damaged state. What kinds of opportunities does this offer us? 
Yeah, I mean, I, that is a, a definitely a concerning area. So, so at Liquid Robotics, we had uh, hundreds of robots uh, that had the ability to do long duration operations. So they could operate for up to a year at a time autonomously in the ocean, collecting data and navigating and those kinds of things. That was really its parting trick is it could run for a year uh, autonomously. And so we, we set the world record for the first autonomous system to cross the Pacific, which was a big deal to do. And we went through two typhoons there, but we, we primarily served three industries um, and the, the company since been bought by Boeing. So it's still out there and there's a lot of robots still in the ocean. Um, one was the oil and gas industry. So it did offset seismic and seep detection and a whole bunch of those, those kinds of things. Uh, the other was the defense industry. It did anti-submarine warfare and uh, ISR, a number of things like that. And the other was the science industry, right? So uh, it did uh, uh, measure the amount of carbon that was being absorbed by the ocean and the ocean is our largest carbon sink actually. Uh, and uh, the problem with carbon uh, is it makes things acidic. Uh, and corals won't grow and fish bones won't grow. So we're, we're kind of looking at a, a future of uh, jellyfish. So if you like jellyfish, you know, that's, that, that's where it's going because fish's bones won't be able to grow uh, and uh, coral won't be able to grow. So we're going to have lots of jellyfish and jellyfish will love the acidic hot water. Um, so we really, uh, I, I worry a lot that we're so far down the path uh, that uh, it's going to be very hard to correct that. We're seeing coral bleaching and a whole bunch of other things going on in that space. But uh, understanding the ocean, building a simulation system for the ocean to understand it. Uh, there are, was a lot of talks about things like uh, iron seeding and things like that to create diatom blooms to collect carbon. Those things kind of scare me because we don't understand the ocean well enough to yeah. do that. Uh, we know that it would work, but we don't know what the side effects would be. Mm. Um, and I think there's just, you know, I was out with Aqua, you know, just this week looking at their uh, fish farms in the ocean and what they're lo looking to do in those spaces. But there's a tremendous amount. Um, amount of, uh, of uh, research in this space, but not nearly enough. Uh, the ocean is still a very, it's less explored than space. It covers uh, uh, three quarters of our planet uh, and it's the, the, the lungs of the planet in a lot of ways as well. So it's, uh, I agree with your passion on it. It's really important. There's microplastics issues. There's all sorts of things. We've taken the ocean way too much for granted and thought of it as an infinite resource and it's not. Mm. Mm, yep. So. Well said. And also underlining there's so much more work to be done. We're going, we're, this conference is full of people who are keen to build out 10 times more stuff in the ocean than we've already built in the recent decades as yeah, well, which should farm. be a real wake up call for all of us to do this much better if we want some living, living creatures left beside the jellyfish. Yeah. Good. Thank you very much. What a fantastic uh, session. I want to thank the panelists and um, wrap up with that. A round of applause for the first great panel up here. Thank you so much. You just heard the discussion searching for the leapfrog from the ONS conference Wednesday, 31st of August. You heard moderator Kimberly Matisson, Professor Christoph Locke from Cambridge Judge Business School, Professor Maria Ströme from the University of Uppsala, and William Vass, VP Engineering from Amazon Web Services. Stay tuned and subscribe to ONS Energy Talks where you find your podcast to hear more highlights from ONS in the months to come.